Hey everybody, back for another week of Securiosity, and we are getting close to October, which means DC Cyber Week is coming up. And during DC Cyber Week, we're going to be throwing our own event, DC Cyber Talks. Presented by CyberScoop, DC Cyber Talks is a TED-like conference dedicated to addressing cybersecurity priorities, trends, innovations, and unprecedented security challenges ahead. For one day, 1,000 of the most influential cyber leaders from tech and government will gather in D.C. to hear the industry's brightest speakers discuss the most critical issues on cybersecurity. The event will be held October 24th. Register now at dccyberweek.com. Let's go. Welcome to Securiosity for September 20th. I'm Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec News. Snowden is being sued, Emotet is back, and we look at why exactly there is a cybersecurity workforce shortage. In our interview, we talk with Danny Adamidis and Elizabeth Wharton of Prevalian. Last week, we told you about the research into a phishing campaign hiding in Microsoft Word macros. We get them to dive deeper and tell us about what their company brings to the marketplace. It was another week full of VC money and cybersecurity IPOs. We will catch you up on all of the business news. But first, let's get to the non-financial side of things. The U.S. Department of Justice has filed a lawsuit in civil court against former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden, alleging he has violated his non-disclosure agreements with both the NSA and CIA by publishing his memoir on Tuesday. In the suit, the government alleges that Snowden did not seek pre-publication review in accordance with the obligations he signed while employed, with Anne contracting for both agencies. The government's objective is not to prevent the book from being published, but rather to recover any money earned by Snowden as a result of the book's publication. Greg, are you surprised by this? Yes and no. Um, uh, I, I'm not surprised that the government is trying to find... Any way that they can to to go after Snowden, whether it's, you know, they know that they're not going to be able to do it from the criminal side of things unless he ever comes back to the country. Um, so they're going to try to go after him on the civil side of things and go after this book. Uh, I am surprised that they even waited this long to to do it because, you know, timed with the drop of the book, the book released Tuesday. And the minute the book went on the shelves, this uh, lawsuit had a nice big press release sitting in everybody's inbox. So um, it, it's clear the government is going to go after him in any way possible, whether that is on the criminal side or the civil side. I mean, I, I think it's great, right? I think, um, you know, let the book be published, take all the proceeds and all the money from it, and um, put it back into um, keeping this country secure. I have to think that he knew, Snowden knew this was going to happen. And I don't think he cares. I, I, I don't. As long as they're not trying to sit on the release of the book, um, I, I, I really don't think that he cares. I don't think that he was dumb enough to think that he was actually going to make all of this money and everybody was just going to sit idly and let that happen. So I, I mean, we all know this guy's history. So re- releasing information for free is kind of uh, what the, uh, what the motive is here. So, um, so when I'm, I, I'm, I would have thought that he would assume that the government would block the book completely. Well, then I think it gets into, First Amendment 
court cases, which I don't think the government really wants to get into at this point about it. And I, I really think that that's more of a headache than just doing it this way. So right. um, I, I think that they just were like, okay, we we can't really block the book I- entirely. Banning books is not what the federal government uh, it does. It's, I, I think that that would just be laughed at by constitutional lawyers uh, at this point. But um, yeah, they were going to go after the the profits of the book. And yeah, I, I'll reiterate that he had to know this was coming. And if he didn't think about it, I'm sure that his lawyers did too. So um, I mean, it's clear the government's going to get some chunk of money if they win this suit, because as soon as this uh, happened, Snowden tweeted out that this is the book the government doesn't want you to see. And I think it became the, the top selling book on Amazon. So it's like the securitist loop. The the government is is going to get what they want. Snowden's going to get what he wants too, because the book is going to be uh, widely read. So yeah, um, yeah, I'm I'm not surprised by uh, any of the way uh, that this happened. Just that we didn't hear about the possibility of this lawsuit happening before. So, have you bought the book? I have not bought the book. We have a copy in the CyberScoop newsroom that's uh, being uh, passed around. We, th- there's actually okay. a bunch of cybersecurity books coming out um, this fall that we're all trying to get through. And that is on the list. I haven't read it yet. I mean, I want to. I definitely want to. I definitely want to read what's in there. But uh, I, I followed this. The, the Obviously, have followed this case and what the NSA has been doing and, and all of the projects in that uh, since the story uh, came to light in 2013. So um, I'm wondering what's different that somebody like myself doesn't already know. Uh, if it's, you know, sort of a first-person account of – the noise around the story when it first broke, like from his perspective, like if you've seen Citizen Four, if you've watched any of the documentaries, it's clear that there was, um, you know, a, a lot of heightened tension in getting the story out. So if we're talking about it from his perspective, that is something that I'm generally interested in and definitely want to read. So that leads me to another question. Um, you said there's multiple books that your team is anticipating. What book are you most excited about? So right now I am reading uh, Andy Greenberg from Wired Magazine uh, has a book um, coming out uh, that we have uh, a preview copy of called Sandworm, which delves into the Russian group Sandworm um, that is responsible for a number of the, the biggest hacking stories that have come to light over the past four or five years. Uh, I, I don't want to jump into it any more than so far. I'm only about 50 pages in. The book's not out for, uh, I think, another six weeks, but um, some really interesting stuff right off the bat. And maybe we can get Andy on uh, closer to the uh, release of the book to talk about it because it's, it's I, I, again, I'm only 50 pages in and I find it to be really, really fascinating how uh, researchers found this group. So Emotet, the botnet has reemerged four months after it went quiet to initiate a spam campaign that relies on stolen email addresses. Emotet operators, by taking control of one email address, scour a user's inbox for recent conversations, then replies to the threads, sending spam. The effect helps scammers avoid email filters by sending what looks like a legitimate message from a known user. The threat intelligence organization Spam House also reported an uptick in activity Monday, saying that email recipients who follow the malicious link could become victims who are added to the botnet. 
Emetet started off as a banking trojan that security pros first detected back in 2014. And since then, the hacking tool has evolved to allow scammers to rent access using the botnet's reach for a range of malicious purposes. Jen, how many companies do you hear talking about Emetet? Because this is such a huge threat. It's been around for a while, and it seems like it's just growing more than, you know, being thwarted. So, I mean, we heard about it a lot more um really historically, right, when it was was really geared towards um, financial transactions. And I haven't heard about it a lot lately. Um, so I guess the big question, they're not a banking Trojan anymore. What exactly are they accomplishing? How are they making money? So it just looks like they are making money by renting access to this to use for whatever purposes criminals can find. You know, uh, it looks like, it, you know, it started off as a banking Trojan. So obviously right. it was to get into accounts. And now with these spam filters, it just looks like the the people overseeing the botnet are just renting access out. So there, yeah. it's, it's spam as a service, everything as a service, including criminal hacking. So they're, they're selling access uh, to the computers and letting criminals run wild with it any way that they can. Interesting. And, and, you know, what did you learn? What's the best way for us to protect ourselves against that? Because obviously that's, you know, more than likely we've got an email in our inbox somewhere that could give them access. I mean, it's the same cyber hygiene stuff that everybody always talks about. If it looks like uh, spam and it looks like they're phishing emails, don't click on it. If you're worried about banking Trojans, put two-factor um, on your banking accounts. Even if it's uh, SMS and you know that that's not the best way to do it because of SIM jacking, but SMS is better than having uh, just you know your password. And um, you should also be, you know, changing your passwords. Not doesn't have to be regularly. Doesn't have to be like every ninety days, like you're an enterprise. But um, you know, once a year, maybe change it out. Once every two years, change it out. Um, yeah, just follow the cyber hygiene stuff, and you shouldn't have to worry about this too much. So the president of a hacked government contractor says a recent breach has cost his company between five hundred thousand and a million dollars in new software, downtime, and other expenses. Quote, we want to see that this doesn't happen to any other small business or any other business for that matter, Miracle Systems President Sandish Sardarda told CyberScoop. It's been a month since Miracle Systems, which provides IT, engineering, and other services to more than 20 federal agencies, learned that its internal server had been breached. On at least one cyber criminal forum, a hacker or hackers has advertised access to the internal company data. Greg, I thought it was interesting um, that I'm assuming 20 federal agencies, all the work is being done on site and not actually in their offices with their internal servers. Um, I don't know, a million dollars seems like a pretty high price tag on that. Do you buy what's going on here? I I mean, I, I do in that it's clear that something was hacked and the Miracle Systems president said as much, but was pretty adamant that the data was nothing but test data or even old data that really doesn't have any standings at any federal agency. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, we have to take him for his word, but we've seen that excuse so many times when it comes to breaches, whether it's on the government or the private side, where, oh, that data doesn't matter. That's not, you know, it's not that big of a deal. You know, we take security very, very seriously, but this 
you know, is that they just hit stuff that we just didn't protect because we didn't think it needed to be protected that much. And then we find out a week, two week, a month later that, oh no, that was actually real data. And it's very, very bad and worse than we thought. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if th- this story goes that way. However, at the same time, it hasn't yet. So, okay. Uh, but, you know, also, we can flip that for the notion of this being sold on uh, the, the crime forums as well. Is it bad that this is being sold on the crime forums? Sure. Does that make the data any more or less legitimate? No. I mean, there are scammers out there that'll just take data no matter what, and they don't care if they can figure out whether it's real data or not and try to make right. uh, a buck off of it. So there may be somebody out there trying to scam criminals selling fake data. That, you know, that stuff happens. That stuff absolutely happens. So there's there's still a, a lot that's unknown here. But again, I wouldn't be surprised if next week, two weeks down the road, we, we have an update where it's, oh, no, this data was in fact um, – real data tied to a bunch of agencies and uh, we're going to be talking about this for a while. Now to the, your question about cost. um, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, for a small federal contractor, um, 500,000 to a hundred million in new software and then the downtime and other expenses, probably some uh, insurance being uh, run there. Yeah, that's a significant amount of money. So it goes to show that even if it's not, let, let's take the, the president for his word there, even if it's just test data and your system still get hacked, you're still looking at a significant price tag to recover from that breach. So protect your stuff no matter what, even if it's test data and it's on your systems, if that gets hacked, you're looking at a six-figure price tag. Who wants to have a six-figure price tag for for anything when it comes to uh, a software breach? So, but this, Yeah, this also goes to show why people don't come forward when something bad happens, right? Because, I mean, what did I do just here? I just kind of questioned whether this, like, story was kind of legit. Um, so, right, so it doesn't exactly pay to be forthcoming and and do what this guy is doing and saying like, hey, you know, look at this. You have to be careful. Definitely. So the Election Assistance Commission told lawmakers it will not decertify certain voting systems that use outdated Microsoft Windows systems, a disclosure that highlights the challenge of ensuring voting equipment is secure even after a vendor puts a operating system toward end of life. While a voting system would fail certification if it were running software that wasn't supported by a vendor, the act of decertifying the system is cumbersome and has wide-reaching consequences affecting manufacturers, election administration at the state and local levels, and voters as well. That quote comes from a letter that was written by EAC commissioners that was sent to the Committee on House Administration. In January, Microsoft will stop providing security updates for Windows 7, a software that's still used in a lot of voting equipment. Jen, this should be simple, right? If you have an old Windows system on election infrastructure, it just needs to go. You know, nothing simple, obviously, right? It, it takes it takes money um, to update these systems, um, to change the systems. Um, I thought it was interesting that he was concerned about um, the vendors or the manufacturers with regards to the issue. I mean, that should be the last thing we're concerned about. Um, We should be thinking about making sure that everyone's vote in every state is equal as everyone else's. Um, 
it's just, it, I just really think it's time um, for the Fed to regulate. This is the voting machine that we use, or these are the three voting machines you can use. And here's the budget for you all to update your machines. But running an old version of Windows is absolutely ridiculous, especially if it's not going to get provided support. And there was a piece of news uh, this week that also came out that uh, a lot of people that have been watching this have pointed to Mitch McConnell sitting on the uh, election uh, security funding for a while. And McConnell finally came out this week and said, okay, I'll I'll give $250 million to the states to go figure out um, what they want to do to enhance the security. So that's a good move. There, There is no... Uh, sort of mandate that the states use that money. However, I mean, it, it's a step in the right direction, but hey, a big step in the right direction by using that money could f- figuring out how to use that money to get rid of Windows 7 uh, uh, on these localities and municipalities systems. Like even just an upgrade to Windows 8, like nobody's saying you have to go out and get brand new Windows 10 machines and make sure it's all you know, synced up in the data centers and the cloud and l- let's get some digital transformation going. No, just don't use a system that is going through end of life. That that just, that, that's, I, 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 I'm at a loss for words. I'm stammering here to, to, to get past the stupidity of that decision. I mean, it's just, it's absolutely ridiculous, but I still think, you know, part of the problem is we're leaving up to states and we're leaving it up to localities and what we should be doing is regulating this is what a secure voting machine looks like. Here's the software it runs. This is what you should be doing. Because quite frankly, some of these states just don't employ people smart enough um, to do this work or find consultants to do this work. Agreed. And we've got to figure it out. It's always in the news cycle. So Israeli authorities have arrested multiple employees of a spyware vendor ability in connection with an investigation into allegations of fraud, smuggling, and money laundering at the company. A.V. Levin, CFO of Ability, Inc., confirmed to the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission Monday that employees were taken into custody on suspicion of breaking the law on a significant scale as part of their business activities. The SEC updated followed prior reports from Israeli media outlets indicating that Israeli Defense Ministry has been investigating the firm for allegedly violating international law with regards to Israeli security export controls. Talviv-based Ability was co-founded by CEO Intali Hergen and CTO Alexander Arkeski. It's best known for marketing hacking tools like ULIN, which stands for Ultimate Interception to International Governments. Greg, what else do you know about this? This seems crazy. Yeah, this this company has been just pounded. They have been pounded by the SEC and legal filings. It's it's been really really bad. Um, in what was it 2017 i believe they were under investigation from the securities and exchange commission for allegedly lying about their products and their finances um we got a hold of some of their product pitches and it just didn't look like it met what uh they were talking about um then the investors came after them because they also figured out that you know, some of this was BS. Uh, the investors accused the company of lying about what that Yulin product did and then alleged the company failed to disclose that instead of outright ownership it, uh, of the product, it was selling product licenses from an undisclosed third party that took a chunk of every sale. 
and it, it was just a, a very shady company from head to toe. So I'm not surprised that they were back in the news this week that not only uh, are they tr- in trouble in the US, but that Israeli authorities have arrested multiple employees too. Like this is just fraud. Like they could have been selling, I don't know, any any type of software, you know, fake word processing software, productivity, right. or, or, or even, you know, cloud servers or whatever. This is just fraud. Like the, what they are selling is not what they say it is. And investors got pissed off. So what happens? You go to jail. Like, that's just the way that it works. 100%. So over the past 14 months, a determined group of hackers has breached IT companies in Saudi Arabia in a likely attempt to gain access to their customers, according to research from Symantec released Wednesday. The group dubbed Tortoiseshell has struck at least 11 organizations, most of them in Saudi Arabia, since July 2018 and was active as recently as July of this year. Targeting Saudi IT providers and collecting data on their networks makes perfect sense for anyone looking for persistent access to those suppliers and the clients. Semantic speculated neither on who might be behind the effort nor which organizations deeper in the supply chain attackers might have hit. However, Adam Myers, CrowdStrike's vice president of intelligence, told CyberScoop his firm believes that hackers in this case appear to be operating in support of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and have been active since at least 2017. So Jen, just another example of how the supply chain is a really big factor in cybersecurity. Yeah, it really is. And it's really important to be protected. 14 months seems like a pretty long time um, to be targeted and not notice. Um, I assume they noticed earlier than this and have been just monitoring it. Yeah, it's one of those, you know, it's an an intelligence operation, you know, you have to sit and watch what is going on, because you don't, you know, you want to get a a full scope of what is actually happening. But yeah, uh, IT providers and IT third party, uh, it's just more and more, this is where hackers make their first entrance into uh, a company, you know, if you hack the supply chain, move laterally, you can get down to the targets that you really want because some bigger targets are protecting themselves. Like you're not going to be able to just knock on the door of some of these companies and metaphorically, of course, and and be let in. So right. turn to the IT providers because that's where more and more the, the there's still just lack security. So um you know, I'm I'm not surprised if this group. You going back to a conversation that we had last week. I'm not surprised if this group overlaps with some other Iranian groups that we've been talking about. And I would not be surprised if we are talking about the same thing six months from now. This is just the the lay of the land. The IT providers are a really big weak spot and just a big target on the supply chain. So nation states are going to continue to go after them. Do we know um, at all what they were doing with the data that they were collecting? I'm sure that it was, I, I, I can't say for certain. I, I don't think uh, Symantec um, really put forward what they were doing with the data other than just collection. And then who knows what they're doing, um, you know, using it to target attacks, using it to just gather information for their own intelligence purposes, probably a mix of the two, um, you know, standard nation state behavior. So the Los Angeles Cyber Lab, a nonprofit organization that provides free cybersecurity assistance to the city's small and medium-sized businesses, on Tuesday announced a new mobile app and online threat intelligence platform. 
the tools unveiled by Mayor Eric Garcetti, are meant to educate businesses on threats like phishing and automate some parts of the lab's threat intelligence work, which is currently disseminated manually. Businesses that partner with the lab, which launched in 2017, can share internal company data like login data, internal web traffic, and user account activity. Once a partnership is established, the lab's executive director, Josh Belk, told State Scoop, the lab reviews the shared data, looks for indicators of compromised data that shows whether or not a user account has been compromised, or whether an email contained a phishing link, for example. Greg, how do you feel about cities being involved in cybersecurity outreach? I think it's smart. Um, I was actually up in New York this week, and I talked to somebody that actually is, um, you know, among the executives or among the leadership in New York City Cyber Command. And it's good to see that the bigger cities are starting to take more of a, a proactive approach in not just talking to enterprises in their city, but also talking to individuals as well. Uh, I mean, we've talked about it and uh, NYC has this NYC secure app that they push to uh, individuals. That's just sort of a, hey, here, here's what you need to know when it comes to cybersecurity in your own space. So um, I, I think that that's really smart because, you know, these big cities want to make sure that as they move into IoT and 5G and they depend on technology to have a livable, thriving city, that the populations of those cities understand the risks that come with it and how to, you know, cut down on that risk as they continue to use public Wi-Fi or, you know, any sort of uh, technological feature that uh, a city has. So uh, good on New York and good on LA. Finding ways to partner with companies or nonprofits or anybody and to get this information in front of individuals, small and medium businesses, and make sure that everybody's on the same page when it comes to cybersecurity. So a combination of factors have contributed to widespread skill shortage in cybersecurity. Various studies suggest the shortage of qualified cybersecurity candidates is set to hit 3.4 million unfilled positions by 2021, which is up from 2.93 million at the current point. It's the kind of existential problem that results in possible data breaches being ignored and the rise of untested security vendors hawking all of these weird tools like AI and deep blockchain and all of these things that give us a headache. And yet there is a surge of momentum behind the argument that the industry's staffing shortage is self-inflicted, at least in part. The lack of qualified job candidates isn't just supply and demand, according to a Forrester report published in July, but also a deeper failure of bias, expectation, compensation, and commitment to effective recruiting and retention. So Jen, do you think that the workforce shortage in cybersecurity is self-inflicted? First, I love that you quoted or interviewed um, Chase Cunningham. Um, from Forrester. He also co-authored a really cute children's book series called um, Sinja that's on cybersecurity, teaching kids what it's about. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Um, he's actually, yeah, it's a cute, it's a cute book series. You should get it for your kids. Um, I think there's four or five books. Um, um, they're actually just really adorable. Um, so I actually do kind of agree that it's a little bit self-inflicted, um, mainly because I think there, especially in this particular community, there are a ton of qualified people in terms of skills 
um, and maybe even certifications that maybe don't have an undergraduate degree or a graduate degree that are sort of being passed over um, because they don't meet sort of that first, like they have an undergraduate degree. Right. Um, and I think if we let go of that and looked at like skills and can they actually do the job, we might fill a small percentage of those jobs, but not everything. But I still think there's just not enough people um, in the industry um, regardless um, of, of biases or not biases. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And I think the self-inflicted part is just uh, a, a complete lack of understanding how to structure these jobs and these positions. I mean, you look at some of these positions and, you know, the, the job descriptions and, you know, they say, we're looking for someone with 15 years of DevSec, you know, DevSecOps security experience, knowledge of continuous integration, JavaScript, C++, Python, and we want them to be a supervisor and they need that master's degree and they better have their SysIP. And then, you know, let's have them relocate to the middle of South Dakota or yeah. the middle of Indiana or Colorado, and then we're going to pay them, you know, 50 grand a year. That, that, that does not, <laughs> that doesn't work. That's ridiculous. And yet it, it's not very hard to find job descriptions like that. If you go out and just run a search in monster or, or indeed or, or whatever. So there really does need to be a, a greater understanding of the, the skills and how the skill sets apply, where to find those skill sets, and then also how to structure a, a pay scale. It, it's just it's just all out of whack right now, and I think that that contributes more and more to the shortage than just oh well people don't have cybersecurity degrees. It, it's just not that type of of industry. That's not the way that this works. So uh, I, I'm the, the story is really illuminating from the standpoint of, of reading some of the quotes and and some people's experience in trying to find jobs or trying to retain executive talent or just some of the different ways they're finding talent too. It, it, it's clear that there, there really is a wide gap between how these jobs are, are structured and the, the knowledge gap that is out there in the industry right now. Well, and you're also dealing with an industry where, you know, your, um, that particular area is always going to be understaffed. The moment there's a breach, there's going to be staff turnover because the CISO is probably getting fired. Um, probably anyone they can sort of point fingers to is probably getting fired once it's cleaned up. And, it, you know, one of my, one of my mentors is a CISO of a large company. And he always jokes to me that the moment there's a breach, it's his last day at work because he's going to, you know, he's going to get let go. Um, so it just, there's not a lot of reward there. So I was talking to a cybersecurity expert and they said basically that, look, things might improve inside companies, but I, uh, IT security is always going to be a tertiary thing. Companies are going to look to the health and profitability of the business first. And then second, they're going to look to how IT and technology can support that. And then that means the third rung of that ladder moving downward is the security teams that are focused on that uh, IT side. So you're just never going to have, you know, 50, 60, 70 people across some of these small and medium businesses uh, protecting their tech technology assets and all the assets that they put online. No. And, you know, if you sort of look at how a business is structured too, right? So your, your sales guys, 
and girls are going to um, be rewarded first. You know, they're out there making the revenue for the company. Um, they're the people that are employee of the month. They're the people who get bonused out. And then you look at the people who develop the product and, and same thing, right? They're the heroes of the company. And then you get down to um, the security team that is thinking about um, online threats and keeping the code secure um, and making sure there's no, um, no threats against them. It's just going to be assumed that they're doing their jobs. They're not getting rewarded for that. They're not being employee of the month. Um, but if there's a breach, um, they're all in big trouble, right? They, they haven't been doing their jobs. They're not doing their jobs well. Maybe they're going to get fired. So there's a lot of risk and, and no real reward here. Yeah, it's clear that even if things do improve, that that there's still a really, really wide gap between the way that businesses look at their cybersecurity talent and the way the cybersecurity talent wants to operate and contribute to a business. For sure. So, okay, to the business side of things this week, a lot of money flying around. Uh, Scout Cybersecurity, a New York-based cloud-native cybersecurity provider for small and mid-sized businesses, raised $25 million in Series B funding. Redsift, a London-based data platform that provides cloud-based email security, raised $8.8 in Series A funding. Some of that money came from InQtel. Acronis, a Singapore-based cybersecurity solutions provider, raised $147 million in funding at a valuation of between $1 and $2 billion. So we have another unicorn on hand. Goldman Sachs led that round there. Trulio, a Canada-based global identity verification provider, raised $70 million in Canadian dollars. That works out to about $52.8 million in U.S. money. Goldman Sachs was also there, joined by Citi, American Express, and Santander. And then the big IPO this week was Ping Identity. Based out of Denver, they focus on digital authentication and security. They raised $188 million in an IPO of 12.5 million shares. And they are backed by Vista Equity Partners and listed on NYSE as Ping. An acquisition this week, GitHub acquired Semmel, the San Francisco-based maker of a code analysis platform. That platform is going to go directly into GitHub and give security researchers the ability to spot vulnerabilities in large code bases pretty quickly. And then as we were putting this show together, HP announced that they acquired Bromium as well. So Jen, a lot of stuff going on this week. Yeah, there was a lot of things going on this week. I think... Um, you know, the acquisition of Semmel um, by GitHub, you know, that kind of acquisition is always interesting because you're taking a company that's got, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of customers that rely on their services, and it's getting acquired by just one customer, one customer that might compete with other customers of that company. Um, and, and, you know, likely um, it's going to become dedicated to GitHub. And so all those customers that they have that are existing are going to have to transition out over time. So I just think it, it's it's interesting. It's interesting to watch things like this happen when when the acquirer isn't acquiring a company because of their customers. Yeah. Um, and it was 
the Semmel thing was part of uh, a couple big announcements from GitHub, including the fact that besides the acquisition, uh, GitHub is going to become a CVE numbering authority, which means mm-hmm. that they can assign uh, IDs and, and put vulnerabilities on the CVE list and be part of the national vulnerability database, which, I mean, that's huge. I mean, think about all the code that flies around on GitHub, and now GitHub's going to have this whole like cottage security part where there are a bunch of security researchers that are a part of um, the platform that are now naming CVEs and putting that out there. So it's clear that GitHub is realizing how they affect the security community and want to take uh, a bigger role in, in helping people find those vulnerabilities. So cool announcements from GitHub this week. Yeah, just really interesting. It'll be interesting to see what sort of replaces um, Semmel um, as a solution for their other existing customers. So Jen, we were talking earlier too. You actually, uh, have some history with ping identity. Yeah. So I, um, I worked with this company, um, that was originally based in Blacksburg, um, that, um, eventually got acquired by Rackspace. Um, and, and one of the original ping team members, um, was part of that company that got acquired by Rackspace. Um, and so I've, you know, had the vantage point of being able to see Ping really early on um, and I'm nothing to do with the company at all, but, um, but know the, the early people. Great. I bet those early people are glad that they stuck around for so long because it looks for like sure. they made yeah. a ton of money um, yeah. uh, this week. So very, very cool stuff. Okay, now to our interview with Danny Adamitis and Elizabeth Wharton of Prevalian. Last week, we told you about Autumn Aperture, which was a campaign where attackers were using Microsoft Word macros, but were using a very, very old and esoteric image file as part of those macros. We get into that report, and then we also talk about what Prevalian brings to the marketplace. They're a relatively new company based in Maryland. Um, So we wonder how they are trying to separate themselves from all the other startups. Check it out. Okay, joining us now, two guests from a newer company on the cybersecurity scene. We are talking with Danny Adamitis and Elizabeth Wharton from Prevalian. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having us. So on our last podcast, we talked about some research that you guys released. Talk to us about Autumn Aperture. What did you guys find? So what we found was a new technique that was being observed where they were able to trojanize Microsoft Word documents and what appeared to be a highly successful campaign. And by using this antiquated file format of the Kodiak Flash format, they were able to avoid antivirus detection by a number of different vendors. Um, so when we saw this, it kind of perked up our ears and we wanted to kind of get this research out to the public to kind of raise awareness to this so that way everyone can start looking for this sort of attack and make sure everyone's defended against it. Okay, let's back up a minute. Who exactly are they? Explain to our listeners. <laughs> so we, um, Pravilion does not do attribution, um, but what we suspect is that this was a highly advanced actor who was targeting U.S. think tanks that were uh, familiar with national security um, 
topics and areas of interest. Okay, I know you guys don't do attribution, so I will absolve you of this next sentence. You do not endorse this, but we actually did some you know, other research. We talked to some other researchers, and this looks like it was uh, tied to Lazarus Group, which listeners, of course, know that is tied to North Korea. So with that being said, um, why the Kodak flash format? Talk to us a little bit about why this is so uh, obscure. So this was, as everyone or some of our older listeners might recall, Kodak flash format was extremely popular maybe a decade, two decades ago. And uh, it was everywhere when everyone still had Kodak, you know, cameras. But since, you know, we started getting smartphones, um, Kodak sales have been declining. And just because it's not being used as much, I think it's one of those areas that just happened to be overlooked by a number of antivirus vendors. Um, you know, hacks off to those guys. They're constantly, you know, busting their butt and they're doing the best they can, but they just seem to be focusing on visual basic applications just because that seems to be utilized and abused by a, a number of different actors. So they kind of have to focus their limited resources where they feel they can get the most bang for their buck. And I think this is something that they really weren't looking at prior to this report or that a lot of them weren't looking at prior to this report. And it seemed to work. I mean, they used an old school method that had been overlooked and highly you know, high success rate for clicks and downloads and attacks. Yeah, and that was something else we kind of um, highlighted in the report is it appeared that this threat actor was actually using a bit.ly link um, and we suspected that was likely being done to evade detection from email services um, as bit.ly typically looks scanned as being clean. Um, but by using bit.ly, we're actually able to pull some metrics from that and we saw that I think it was over 300 people were able to click on that campaign. Um, so it just proved to be extremely successful. And at least in terms of getting to the victim and having them click on the first link. So the documents that the macros were embedded in, are these documents the attackers created themselves? Or is this the group pulling documents off the open internet that pertain to policy subjects North Korea is paying attention to? So this was the latter. We believe that all of these um, Trojanized documents were actually written by uh, members of industry who are recognized experts in their own particular area. Um, for example, one of the documents we talked about was written by a person who actually gave a presentation at a nuclear deterrent summit um, here in Washington, D.C. Um, so this was his speaker's notes that you know we assess he likely made available to the public for those who were not able to see his presentation and then the threat actors just happen to grab onto those and utilize those. Um, you know, obviously we do not suspect that he was in any way involved in this, but he was just kind of uh, collateral damage, if you will. So we've seen the North Koreans tied to a number of these campaigns. It's it and getting away from the actual um, you know attribution part of it it's tough to stop the social engineering aspect of this like if I'm working for a think tank and I'm writing about what's going on in East Asia obviously I'm going to want to read you know some of these documents if somebody emails it to me so what advice do you have for enterprises facing these types of attacks how do they you know avoid clicking on something that is weaponized well, and it wasn't that they were clicking per se. It was that when the document asked them to enable macros. So training and reminding your folks that, hey, if this pops up, this is not normal. Hey, stop, pencils down, 
ask somebody to verify before you do it. Or if you have clicked, it, you know, no shame, just tell us so that we can start taking evasive actions and remediating ASAP. That old school attack, but we've known how to deal with this kind of stuff for years and reminding your team that this is beyond heightened alert and don't enable macros if it if you're downloading a word document you should never have a word document that asks you to enable macros yeah so that was going to be my next question is the only time i've ever heard anybody talk about microsoft word macros it's within the course of an attack. I mean, personally, I, I use Microsoft Word pretty frequently. I, I don't even know how to use macros. So I'm a little confused as to one, why this keeps popping up in attacks to who uses macros and, <laughs> and whether you know anybody's ever talked to Microsoft to say, hey, this is only really used in attacks. So how about we just take it out of the program once and for all? So there's a, a couple different questions and I'll do my best to answer all of them. Um, I think the first one was, why is it, so the reason that this is so successful or the reason that it keeps being used is because it is successful. Um, it, this is one of those attacks that again kind of relies on that social engineering aspect. And as you guys know, you can do a, a quick search on GitHub and find three or four projects that will help you build these macros. So to the attacker, this costs them almost nothing except for maybe an hour after time. Whereas if they were trying to develop some sort of you know unknown exploit, that could take months, weeks, or you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to perform that research. This is that low-hanging fruit, and as long as that low-hanging fruit continues to be successful, we expect to see this continue to be utilized by these attackers over the next coming months. Yeah, I mean, when you look at a conference that had 350 attendees, and the Bitly link was clicked over 367, 61 times within the first week. I mean, for, as a conference organizer, I'm thinking, wow, obviously I had the best speakers with the best content. <laughs> Folks are eating it up. But it, you know, little do they know. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the company. I first heard about um, Prevalian at last year's Data Tribe Challenge. Can you talk a little bit about that and then also what Prevalian brings to the market? Well, in, yeah, hard to believe it's only been a year since the Data Tribe Challenge. And since then, we've just completed our Series A and grown exponentially and really built out a team that uh, thanks to Danny and the rest of our Intel team, we're able to bring this tailored intelligence, uh, building out our platform and feeding this information and this analysis, uh, like I said, the tailored intelligence side to our, our customers. So can you dive into that a little bit more? Um, what specifically do you do? Well, we provide that additional insight on third-party risk that we give visibility into the ecosystem without deployment of software or hardware. And really when you're talking about the rise in supply chain risk, third parties that in this case, think tanks were being attacked, not necessarily because of information they specifically had, but 
to uh, they were being attacked because of who wanted to read their information and the access those third parties had. So we provide that intelligence level so that companies can assess the risk so that the think tank now knows and other users are now aware of, hey, these documents, this campaign is out there. Maybe we should pay closer attention and remind our our team to not click the macros. So when I think about really sort of giving myself a, a cyber score or, or sort of looking at vendors, I think about those questionnaires, um, you know, that could be a thousand questions long asking me about my vendors. Is that mm-hmm. what you're doing or is it something else? <laughs> no, I mean, because and, and that's the problem that we're really trying to address is that you do check the box and you go through and by question 30, sure, not even sure what you're asking, but of course we do this. Of course we do this. Uh, like, yes, we have a policy. Are you following it? No. <laughs> um, but uh, building out, because prior to joining Prevalian, I was with a large municipality and we may or may not have had a large ransomware incident <laughs> and had just obtained our cyber risk insurance. Uh, so two months of premium payments and uh, allegedly multiple millions and millions of dollars in coverage losses. So it, we're trying to, but it, when you look at who you do business with and you look at who you allow into your network, into your environment, and you look at who perhaps you're insuring and who you're acquiring from that detailed level, sure, they've checked the boxes, of course. Who doesn't check the box? But providing that and from a multiple multiple sources, being and then our analysis or analysts such as Danny and his team going through and from each of those data points, pulling out information, spotting the trends and providing that detailed information of this is what we see coming in this industry. We see this threat group becoming more active. We see this effectively coming out of these systems. So do with this information what you will, but it gives them something to act on rather than just, well, yep, sure. We had a policy for that. Yep. It's somewhere on paper. Yeah. So getting into a little bit, let's dive deeper into that. You know, how hard is it for enterprises to evaluate and really know what is sitting on their network? I mean, you talk a lot about third-party risk and I mean, really that's the risk, figuring out what is on the network and where all that comes from. Yeah, that's one of the primary problems is that a lot of people don't actually have good metrics about what what their network is, how big is their network, what's on the network, who has access to it. And that kind of kicks a little bit back into the threat modeling aspect um, that Elizabeth spoke about at her recent CISO summit. It's just kind of knowing what you have and what you have to protect is half the battle. And then once you kind of understand what your footprint looks like to the public internet, that's when I want to say Crevillian kind of comes in with that um kind of third-party aperture, and we're able to kind of see what is being exposed, what is um, beaconing out from that network, and how, you know, you can better, make better decisions in order to protect yourself and your assets. Yeah, I don't envy uh, any of the C-suite these days, because 
it's not as if it's a castle surrounded by a moat that you can't get in. I mean, there's just multiple layers and providing some of that clarity of not only what is in your network or partner's network, but what does it mean? Uh, Because one thing could set off and trigger like, oh gosh, this is horrible, absolutely horrible. Oh, I can't believe it. No, it just means you need to change a setting, happens to the best of us. And the reality is it's not really impacting anything as opposed to, no, this this is an active campaign by these threat actors. This is where you're most vulnerable because this is what they're they're doing with that. And so having that next level of information to act upon. So your company's website also talks about using post-compromise intelligence to drive pre-compromise insights. And, you know, driving security teams and businesses overall to be proactive is a tough task. What's it take to change that thinking? Well, part of it is the industry's doing it for us, is that more and more of the companies, as you hear about more of these breaches or more of these incidents, and everyone says, wow, I wish I had known, you know, if, I, if only I had known X, Y, or Z, I could have adjusted my reaction. And so allowing that to build in itself, but also the recognition that the risks are there and if you know where they are, you can do a little prevent. You know, if you know that, hey, we've got some folks attending some conferences, let's remind them not to do this. It may prevent the next incident or it may make it easier. It gives you that running head start. So part of it is the industry's own awareness. And the other part of it is really working with the companies and having the conversations uh, from the decision makers to say, hey, here's this additional information. It will save you, you know, going forward. And then part of it's podcasts like this. <laughs> you appreciate that. So we like to end our interview on a random question. And so the random question for the two of you is, what is your favorite non-InfoSec internet site? <laughs> Oh, now, now for once, Danny is actually stumped, and uh, it depends if I'm being uh, indulging in my love of trashy reality TV shows, uh, or if I'm trying to be serious and uh, you know impress people with my depth of. Of course, I read the Wall Street Journal and the Economist every day, but. Uh, <laughs> Now I want to know what your favorite reality TV show is. Well, in in having grown up in Atlanta, Tamara Tattles is a good one at giving her insights on stuff. But we did promise our team that we would mention pirate uh, aliens. So if there was a site that dealt with pirate aliens uh, for the rest of the Prevalian team, we would read that. Wow. Okay. Pirate and aliens. Not, not what I expected, but <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Elizabeth and Danny, uh, for joining thank us today. Us. Thank you. Thanks again to Prevalian for joining us. And that's all we got for this week. Jen, what you have going on next week? Um, Next week. That's so far away. 
Um, you know, my life um, as a VC is always meeting with a lot of companies. A lot of them will be cybersecurity companies, um, hearing what they're they're working on, and um, you know, thinking about whether or not it's something that fits into our portfolio. Sounds like fun. How about you? Um, I'm going to re- be reporting on uh, all of the the tire fires that that come with the cybersecurity space next week. We've already got some cool stories lined up, so I'm eager to get those out and have our audience check it out. And we will definitely talk about them on next week's show. So I hope everybody has a good week. As always, stay curious. Stay curious.